Hello everyone, I'm Chris Jung, and welcome to The Helix Show. As we kick off this introductory episode, I'm sure we all have a few questions about the show. Who are you? Why are you listening? And who am I? We'll get into all this today, but let's start with a short mission statement for our student-run organization, the Helix Initiative. And I'm reading this right off the bylaws. The Helix Initiative provides a medium for students with interest in scientific research to connect through various projects and events, and to spread the accessibility of scientific education through outreach efforts. That's great. We want to spread interest in science and scientific inquiry. But I want to dive deeper. Why does this matter? What can science do? And what can it tell us about ourselves and the world we live in? And these are some pretty big questions to answer. For this, I want to start off with the words of Richard Feynman, who can probably capture the essence of that question, why science, a lot better than I can. How strange it is, listen to this. How much is known after 200 years of studying physics? How much is known about the electrons, light, everything? And in order to understand the nuclear forces, it's almost certain that we're going to have to take a completely different view about everything that we know already, philosophically, that is. We're going to have to find another way to look at the world in which everything that we've already found out about is the way it is. And yet, that little detail about what goes on in the nucleus then falls into place. It's a very hard job. It's lots of work. So what do we do it for? Because of the excitement, because of the fact that each time we get one of these things, we have a terrific Eldorado. We have a wonderful uh, new view of nature. We see the ingenuity, if I may put it that way, of nature herself, the peculiarity of the way she works. It takes a terrible strain on the mind to understand these things. And the real value of the development of the science in this connection, or I mean, the thing that makes me go on, is this, the, the, the difficulty of understanding it. We live in a moment that'll never come again. These discoveries cannot be made twice. One doesn't discover America two or three times in succession, really. And one doesn't discover the laws of nuclear forces or electricity more than once. People say, some people say, our age is meaningless. Those are only people who don't know what we're doing in this age, that this age is the age in which mankind is finding out about the nature that he lives in. And if they don't understand what's already been uncovered, they can't appreciate the search. Let's think about what he says here. If they don't understand what's already been uncovered, they can't appreciate the search. As a high school student growing up right now in the 21st century, I think it's very easy to be complacent or, on the other end, very intimidated by the task we have. We've seen so many revolutions in engineering and so many of us have access to technology, unlimited information right at our fingertips and search engines. And that's crazy, right? And isn't that enough? Why do we need even more scientific innovation? <laughs> but at the same time, we're already learning how to edit whole genomes or strip down the fundamental forces and laws of the universe. And that raises the big question, why? And here's a thought. And I think this is quite an obvious answer to that question and one that 
Feynman's trying to convey as well. We care about science because there's a lot left to discover. There's another famous Feynman lecture along with many where Feynman talks about the scientific method. I think you can probably find it on YouTube. He says that if a conjecture disagrees with experiment, it's just wrong. And right now there are so many examples in the current universe of theory without concrete evidence. Especially in quantum electrodynamics, there's a lot of constants just waiting to be physically verified. And there's examples of evidence without unifying theory, like why is there so much more matter than antimatter in the universe? What does this tell us about the world today? When Copernicus suggested that the Earth was rotating around the sun, it was at a time when the fundamental truth was that the skies and heavens revolved around us. Also, concepts like the circulation of blood, which are so obvious to us now, were outrageous before William Harvey's discovery, where it was thought that blood was constantly replenished through the liver. So we've seen history been changed and entire worlds and schools of thought just flipped by what we call now scientific discovery. And maybe just another outrageous discovery that can flip the entire worldview right now is just waiting to be found. Going back to the quote, in Feynman's words, we need to understand what's already been uncovered to search for that new discovery, which I guess is highlighting the importance of spreading this accessibility of education. So that maybe in part can explain why science and science education is important to us. I think now might be a good time to answer that other question. Who am I? My name is Chris, and the first and probably the only thing you have to know about me is that I am a very unqualified host. I can't speak for the collective high school experience, and I am nowhere near well-versed enough in the scientific literature or in expertise to be your most reliable source. But wait, before you click off, what can I or... What I will at least try to provide is to explore the world of science, whatever that means, with whoever is listening, and hopefully you'll join me along for this ride. So that was quite a lengthy introduction, but that's okay. We'll only have to do this once. So let's go back into this concept and try our best to trace back science and what science really means. The word entered the English language in the Middle Ages as a French importation synonymous with the word knowledge. And it kind of referred to the accurate and systemic knowledge, more analogous to the word scientificus debated by Latin translators of Aristotle. By the Aristotelian theory of knowledge, someone had scientific knowledge when they arrived at a conclusion demonstratively. And keep in mind that this word demonstration isn't necessarily experimental, but it's kind of in the same sense as the quadrat demonstratum of Euclid, or rigorous abstract mathematical proof. So in Aristotle's era, already scientific knowledge wasn't really a tautology. It was purposely used to create a distinction between what was common knowledge and common sense and this thing called scientific knowledge. And later on, scholastic philosophers saw the sciences as branches of philosophy. I'm sure a lot of you know about natural philosophers, which was often what we referred to scientists of that time. And they had seven sciences of medieval learning. Grammar, logic, rhetoric, 
arithmetic, music, geometry, and astronomy. And right off the bat there, we can kind of notice that these are very physics-oriented or mathematics-oriented topics, not much room for biology or chemistry as we would know now. The definition of science, even then, was a hotly contested debate, but we know that when the word entered the English language by the 1600s, there was a clear distinction between science and knowledge from the Aristotelian era. As Francis Bacon popularized the scientific method in the late 16th century, science shifted from Euclidean demonstrations to observable and measurable and structural methods. But this distinction also came under attack, which to some extent, I think this distinction still pervades today and it still creates a lot of conflicts. John Ruskin wrote in 1874, quote, The use of the word scientia, as if it differed from knowledge, is a modern barbarism, enhanced usually by the assumption that the knowledge of the difference between acids and alkalis is a more respectable one than that of the difference between vice and virtue. And I think he's making a pretty good point here. Richard Feynman is also famously quoted as saying, Science is a belief in the ignorance of experts. When someone says science teaches such and such, he's using the word incorrectly. Science doesn't teach anything. Experience teaches it. And though I think that Feynman's kind of touching on a different point here about the scientific method and scientific process, it's not that hard to deny that science can seem very intimidating at times and it can often come off as very pretentious. And this reminds me of movies like Goodwill Hunting or just the general stereotype that is associated with a lot of scientists. I also want to mention a word that's not used in the bylaws, if you still remember them, and it's scientist. And this wasn't at all intentional when we were writing these, but it raises some interesting questions, like, what does it mean to be a scientist? Chances are that most of the students listening here have said at one point in their life that they want to be some sort of scientist, or they've at least considered the career choice. And many students in our organization actually conduct research projects and compete in science fairs. So this makes them scientists, right? If not, then who gets to be called a scientist? For this, I wanted to start off by tracing the roots back to the first scientist. But it became pretty clear to me that the first scientist, kind of like the concept of a first human, is almost impossible to determine. What's easier to identify are the characteristics of a modern scientist. Whereas most ancient scientists like Euclid based science off pure theory and rigid mathematical proof, the Baconian view seemed to have some requirements set for scientists. 1. They must use experiment as a fundamental part of their proof and use mathematical or conceptual or logical concepts as tools. And two, they also have to consider information without any bias. And this, I think, is usually associated with the Age of Enlightenment and shift of power away from the church to a quote-unquote more scientific thinking. And most individuals doing scientific work during the Age of Enlightenment, like Huygens and Hooke and Newton, satisfy most of these requirements. But to really trace back to the first modern scientists, we probably have to go even further back to Arabic mathematicians or 
the often cited European Renaissance. Many experts recognize Ibn al-Haytham as a first scientist. He lived in present-day Iraq between 965 and 1039 CE. This was the scientist who invented the pinhole camera and discovered the laws of refraction by studying rainbows and eclipses. So this seems to tick the boxes for what modern science is. He's using observable phenomena as a proof for some of the laws that he's discovered. But it kind of still remains unclear whether his scientific methods satisfied all of the requirements, which is why we have to move further along the timeline to Galileo and William Gilbert, who have more well-documented excerpts of their scientific method. Gilbert, though often underappreciated, was discovering the nature of magnetism in the late 16th century. And in his most famous work, he argued for, quote, sure experiments and demonstrated arguments instead of conjectures and the opinions of philosophical speculators. He also emphasized the replicability of experiments, and he wanted to conduct his research carefully, skillfully, and deftly, which I think is a very big theme in the scientific community today. Galileo, the famous discoverer of the moons of Jupiter and other astronomical imperfections or anomalies, was directly influenced by Gilbert, and he was famously cited as using the scientific method in the early 17th century. But still, it wasn't until 1833 that William Wuell, Cambridge University historian and a philosopher, coined the term scientist to describe someone who quote, studies the structure and behavior of the physical world through observation and experiment. But this distinction, or maybe it's more of a generalization, was met with some hot opposition. The late Dr. Sidney Ross at the RPI in New York detailed the evolution of the word scientist in a 1964 publication. And in that work, he points out that the thought of pursuing science for money used to be super distasteful. Even men like Davy and Faraday, who earned their livelihoods through practicing some form of science, rejected opportunities to patent or monetize their inventions or discoveries. Instead, they regarded themselves as benefactors of mankind. Quote, to them, the word scientist implied making a business of science. It degraded their labors of love to drudgery for profits or salary. Which, in my opinion, that's kind of dramatic. <laughs> But Faraday called himself an experimental philosopher until his death, and even Lord Kelvin preferred the term naturalist, so this obviously meant something to them. And it actually seems that there was a whole war over this one word, with polite and heated letters sometimes, between some really famous scientists and linguists of that era, and many alternate suggestions were thrown around. <laughs> philosopher, naturalist, physicist, chemist, sciencer. <laughs> And from a detached view, this does seem super nitpicky. What is the deal? But we won't get into this debate today. I strongly recommend reading Dr. Sidney Ross's paper on this, as it was pretty interesting. But what I really want to know is a change in our perspective of science, from the time of Aristotle to Ruel to now. And right now, for students pursuing a career, Becoming a scientist is just another profession, a label that you might see in a career day presentation along with policemen or lawyers or something that you ask a fourth grade kid and they say, I want to be a scientist or marine biologist. And 
This raises a question. Does a normalization of this word scientist mean that we've kind of lost our moral compass as Faraday and Davy thought that it did to use science as a pure benefactor of mankind? And maybe this is true. We can certainly see some examples of maybe scientific patents that maybe could have been used to benefit mankind if there wasn't a price tag attached to certain inventions. We see the rise of pseudoscience and companies using quote-unquote science to defend possibly harmful products. But I also think that the worlds have changed from when well-off Englishmen of noble heritage were considered the forerunners of science. And the economy has changed, and although maybe it's not correct in the definition of science, I would argue that scientist is often just a pretty convenient title to use in conversation. Often, we can use it to distinguish between not well-thought-out arguments and pseudoscience and rational experimental thought. But what does science or practicing science even mean today? I think it broadens the scope from the physical sciences, as we saw with the scholastic philosophers, to really any discipline consciously using what we call the scientific method. So skepticism of the status quo, or kind of detached description of phenomena, and constructing testable hypotheses, big buzzword there, and confidence levels in data. A lot of students would probably say that their biology class is, in fact, a science class, although the origins of science didn't really pertain to biology. Though you could also argue that that was just because biology may have been a harder thing to observe when microscopes were not yet discovered. And many listeners probably at one point in their lives have taken a social science class. In such classes, maybe you've written a research paper and you've had to cite your sources and use logical deduction as well as historical reasoning and concrete examples. Putting the science back into certain concepts is also a very big focus in policies, politics, and companies of the 21st century. And this, I think, is going in the right trajectory. My hope is that maybe we can all be scientists, which is probably the most cliche thing to say. Maybe we can all observe what's around us and be curious and Maybe it will make us better at just arguing with people if we have solid concrete evidence that from an objective view is more valid. But what's the conclusion? So I know that I went off a few tangents here and there, but (laughs) if you're still here, this podcast isn't reserved for linguistic enthusiasts or just etymologists. I hope we can all walk away with the significance of what science means in our life, in our aspirations, in our career choices. There's so many things out here in this curious little world of ours. There's stars yet to be discovered, millions of tiny microscopic processes, ions flowing through receptors, electricity coursing through our heart and our neurons every second. Here in the Helix Show, we plan to delve deeper into these questions. So, this podcast is for all scientists science lovers, natural philosophers, scientific observers, whatever you call yourselves, if I may be so bold, all people. Thank you so much for listening to The Helix Show. Many thanks to all of our listeners and, of course, Feynman and Dr. Sidney Ross for their perspectives.
And while we're at it, why not thank all the scientists or natural philosophers and curious souls who came before us and those who are currently working right now to make the world a better place. Make sure to subscribe to our podcast on Spotify or Apple Podcasts for future episodes. Thank you.